Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? Kingswood U.S. CEO and industry veteran Derek Bruton invites his guests to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. The guest list represents a who's who of the financial services industry. Derek's goal is to provide you with insight into how he and other leaders think about today's challenges and plan for future success. And now, let's see whether or not today's guest can hold Derek's attention. All right, friends and colleagues, welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? My goal with this podcast is quite simply to drill down into topics, which I understand from hearing directly from different constituents in this industry are the most important to them. I'm going to address these topics at pace with my guests, challenge them where they've never been challenged, and only stay on conversations that are holding my attention. And I'll leave it up to you whether you've gleaned something from this that will benefit you professionally or personally. But bottom line, give me 20 minutes of your day and I'll make sure it's time well spent. So we're going to talk about mergers and acquisitions in this industry. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to start. My, my dad calls me a few months back and asked me what I thought about a story he read of a Canadian firm buying an American wealth management firm. And he was referring to CI Financial's acquisition of Belasa Diverno in, in Chicago. Now, first of all, my dad is the last person I thought that would ever ask this question. I, this is my dad, after all, who I love dearly, but he doesn't know an RIA from the CIA. And he's been telling his friends for the last 15 years that his son is in the same industry as that Madoff guy, but that, you know, Derek's a good guy and he's not a crook. So I got that going for me. My point here is that even my dad is aware of cons this massive consolidation and this trend of M&A in the financial services industry. There were a record-breaking 55 transactions that took place during the third quarter of this year. That's the most active quarter in the history of the wealth management industry. Am I surprised? No, not at all. This sleeping giant came back to life after a slow second quarter this year, and, and naturally because advisors were just really focused inward on their clients, doing deals wasn't top of mind uh, amidst the, the COVID pandemic, and uh, they just sidelined deals, but they're roaring back, and uh, you know, I'm not going to go into all the stats. You can look those up, but let's just say industry consolidation, particularly in the RA space, it's an Oscars party, it's a Super Bowl party, and the most raging of bar mitzvahs all wrapped into one. And so many people in this industry want to be at this party. But let's dive right in and, and talk to someone who's oftentimes the host at this party. I'd like to welcome Liz Nesvold, who's the Managing Director and Head of Asset and Wealth Management Investment Banking at Raymond James. Now, that's a big title and a big job, but Liz's success <laughs> in this industry is an even bigger story. She spent nearly 30 years bringing buyers and sellers together, engineering deals, and making a lot of people happy and wealthy. She has over 200 deals to her credit, and I'm pretty sure by the time this podcast ends, she'll, well, she will have an injury yet another. I love the game of tennis, enjoy playing, watching, and, and taking note of the most talented players out there. And to me, without question, Liz is the Serena Williams of investment banking. So uh, <laughs> hello, Liz, and welcome. 
<laughs> Thank you, Derek. That is uh, quite a welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted betting, to be here. <laughs> I'm betting your backhand is better than Serena's knowledge of RA multiples. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I'm not sure. She's a pretty tough, <laughs> smart cookie. Uh, well, let's just jump right in. You know, I pointed out that we saw indications in March and April this year that uh, this pandemic had stunted M&A activity. But it seems like every day, every single day I'm reading in, in any one of the publications about a new acquisition that was announced and that activity is as strong as ever now. What are your overall thoughts on the space right now? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, it really did come roaring back from the second quarter. Uh, and it's been quite a busy industry for, let's say, at least the last four or five years, where in many of those years, we've hit record-breaking numbers in terms of the number of firms that have transacted. But uh, a bit of what we saw in the third quarter, I'd love to say, let's annualize that, and that's the new pace going forward. But um, a fair bit of that was pent up demand um, from a very slow second quarter. So the year, I'm not sure that we'll break any uh, records this year, given the sec second quarter slowdown, but there are a lot more eyeballs on this space than ever before is probably the best way to say it. And there are a number of new entrants um, coming into the space. There's a lot more capital um, and there is certainly a lot of continuity planning need. So I don't expect um, the pace to abate dramatically at any uh, near point soon. I don't, I agree with you. And, and you know, I was reading a, a report by Echelon Partners, who a lot of people know in this space is, is doing a lot of work. And they said the average deal size in the third quarter was about, was nearly 2 billion in assets under management. So is this party, are you seeing this party really just reserved for the larger firms out there? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. The, those, uh, that data point will be skewed by some larger transactions that occur. So for instance, you, you make reference to one in your opening and Velasa Denverno and Foltz, um, that was a, a good size transaction. So for every $5 billion firm that transacts, you can have some firms that are a billion to two billion and still, uh, and even lower and still end up with a $2 billion average. But I think we're seeing firms across the spectrum transact. They're, in terms of need, there are probably more firms below a billion um, that need to think about this, but certainly we're seeing some larger firms either seek capital um, maybe recap the business because they've had an investor who's been in there a little long in the tooth, or we're seeing some first-time firms transact that had uh, grown organically and gotten to a point where um, they want to institutionalize the business and take it to the next level, and that may include a partner. Well, let, let's hit on that because that's a good point. Uh, I was talking to an advisor the other day who's contemplating this, and he goes, Derek, you can't run a marathon on an empty stomach. And, you know, he was referring to the fact that uh, he doesn't have the resources, he doesn't have the people and the talent really to scale up his business right now. And he's at this, I don't know, inflection point where he's saying, you know, do I, do I sell or do I make investments and maybe take a hit to my margins and, and grow my business? So at what point in the evolution of a business does an owner just say, it, it, you know, it's time to sell my business? 
That's a good question. And it, it comes down to the ownership makeup and really where are they in their um, business evolution. There are many um, owners in, in RIAs, as you rightly point out, that have had wonderful practices, small businesses, and to take your practice into what we call the valley of death. I have to give a nod to David Patrick, who taught me that term, and bring it back out, reinvesting heavily, foregoing compensation distributions as owners to get to that next level of institutionalization is scary. That is uh, not, it's not for everybody, and it's certainly not for somebody who might be a sole owner or two owners who are in their early 60s who have not started the continuity planning phase of pushing equity down or even bringing in their next uh, lieutenants to succeed them. Um, So sooner is better than later in terms of thinking. What I do find often is that in an industry filled with practitioners who um, work so earnestly to help people plan for family business events, family life events, financial planning, estate planning, they don't do enough of their own planning in the time horizon that uh, they might want to. And sometimes it's some uh, event that nobody ever plans for. Um, We're in a pandemic now, that's certainly one of them. But sometimes a health scare prompts people to sit up and take notice. Yeah, health scare, 2008, 2009, financial crisis. Mm These things are, you know, serve as wake-up calls. But you know, you mentioned hard work. I talk to a lot of advisors. They're working hard with their clients and working hard to take care of their their staff. But but oftentimes you don't see advisors working hard on their business. And and what we're talking about here is working hard to uh, to grow your business, to make decisions that uh, you know put yourself in in a position to take it beyond a billion or two billion in assets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it takes some work. Speaking of work, though, let's step out a second. You know, I, you, you've got to be busier than you've ever been in your life right now with, with everything going on. But are you having fun? <laughs> my team and my clients in this crazy pandemic have uh, given me an opportunity to really enjoy what I do. Um, it's it's a strange time for sure, um, but we've got the most amazing clients and team uh, to service them. So I am, uh, I love what I do. I, I thank you for telling the world that it's three decades now, but um, you know, I'm so passionate about um, this environment and in particular this space where it's all intangible assets and those intangible assets people serve their clients um, so thoughtfully and thoroughly. It's, it's a great, great space. So I love it. Well, good, good. Well, that's, that's most important. I said nearly three decades. It, it could be oh. 20 years in the business. So <laughs> I'm, you can I've round down. Another six months. I've got another six months. <laughs> so let's talk about valuations because I know it's a hot topic. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a buyer, you want to learn what you can sell for. If you're a seller, you want to know what you can buy people for uh, at this point. But valuations, particularly with RIAs, have they gotten to the point where it just doesn't make true financial sense for an acquirer? 
Oh my goodness. Um, we have definitely heard from some acquirers that they're stepping out of the market because pricing seems a little lofty, but I would really break that down and hopefully for your listeners, give them a little intelligence that most people don't appreciate until they get into the nuances of the deal. It is not a price tag, meaning a multiple of EBITDA that really tells us if this is a full valuation um, or not. Uh, it's a function of the structure. So often when clients come in, uh, you know, they have a number in their head and we talk about that number and everybody always says, you know, 10 times, nine times EBITDA, um, 11 times EBITDA, whatever that number is, they pick a number as a multiple of EBITDA. And then I'll give them an example. I'd say two, two firms. Um, the first one uh, is uh, the buyer says, I'm going to give you 10 times EBITDA. The second one buyer says, different buyer says the same thing. The first firm gets uh, nine times their EBITDA paid at close and one time guaranteed in 12 months. The second firm gets 10 times paid five times their EBITDA at close and one times over each of the next five years, assuming they grow at 5%. Are these two deals exactly the same uh, in terms of the implied multiple? And the answer is no. Um, If you look at it on a a time basis, so um, financial planners um, spend a lot of time projecting and discounting Um, We do the same. If you look at these two examples, the first deal is pretty close to a 10 times uh, multiple. The second one is maybe 8.7 or 8.8 times EBITDA. If you look at a discounting at maybe a 10% growth rate, and then you layer in um, something else. So let's say the buyer says, if you don't grow at 5%, I'm going to give you a haircut on what is called an earnout, And let's say they give you 50 cents on the dollar if you grow at half the growth rate. Now what we're really talking about is a multiple of 6.9 times EBITDA versus the other one who got nearly 10 times EBITDA. Those are radically different valuations and it all comes into play through structuring. Interesting, okay, interesting. What are those? What are those? Those qualities that you know command a premium, and and likewise, you know, what are the qualities that take take down a valuation? That's a, a good uh, question. Um, the firms that I see that generate the highest market premium tend to be firms that have both the the qualitative and the quantitative factors in mind uh, as they're uh, presenting themselves to the market. So when I say um, qualitative, we think about the depth of the team, the skill sets that they bring to bear, maybe brand recognition, the local market, a happy growing clientele. When I think about the quantitative side of the equation, it it is uh, logical things like, have their assets been growing at a fast pace? That's not a perfect correlation to value, but um, it's certainly a helpful indicator. Um, Are they profitable? Are they nicely profitable? Um, So firms that, uh, if I had to boil it down into two factors, one qualitative and one quantitative, the people, the human capital matters the most in terms of engagement with a third party. 
And not everybody clicks the same way with another party. So it's that click factor and it's hard to gauge up front. That's why it's really important to find cultural fits between buyers and sellers. And then on the quantitative side, it's organic growth. That is the single most influential factor when you think about valuation, because a lot of these firms sort of hit terminal velocity. They get to a certain point and we use a billion all the time. You get to a billion and then you sort of grow in dribs and drabs. And more often it's market helps you, clients using their assets hurt you, and maybe you're stuck at a billion. But organic growth, the ability to develop business uh, independently is a very, very influential factor. Um, in terms of the negatives, you know, there, there pretty much isn't any negative that somebody can have that wouldn't um, still generate some interest by the right type of buyer. So somebody could be unprofitable. That could be solved through a partnership. They could be losing clientele at the back door. You got a risk mitigate structure still could be solved. You could have a CEO succession dilemma could be solved. Somebody's going to jail. Maybe that's the one we can't solve. But that being said, um, sometimes firms are too profitable and they just simply haven't reinvested in the business. And that's actually a negative to buyers. Um, people always talk about my margin is this, my margin is that. But um, this is a pretty sophisticated acquiring community, both within the industry and then with external capital sources coming to market. Um, and parsing through a business to see that somebody has a 50% uh, EBITDA margin and they have a staff that is, you know, barely able to breathe because they're so under-resourced, you know, that will definitely be a negative on valuation. Right, right. Uh, it makes sense. I, it's, I've, so many times in my career, I've talked to advisors who talk about investments in their business or talk about uh, money they're spending. It's either categorized as an expense to them or as an investment to them in many cases. And those that ca characterize it as investment have really focused on the growth of their business and uh, are willing to look at some margin devaluation because they're looking at the growth of their business and they're investing in it. And so many people just don't think that way. But, you know, going back to your point about positives and, and I look at distribution, you know, firms mm -hmm. that have some sort of way to grow through distribution. I've seen people with newsletters or radio or TV shows mm -hmm. or, or perhaps they're doing they have a, a niche in their business that they really want to amplify and, and go after. And those firms seem to, you know, when you start hearing, granted, you have inside knowledge, but when you start hearing about valuations that get above that 12x EBITDA multiple, uh, it seems like they have that quality in their business mm -hmm. to your organic growth point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Where, where are there, I mean, if you look across the industry today, where are there, and I'm, and I'm not just holding you to the RIA space, but also in other parts of the, of the industry, fintech what, or wealth management, the asset management side, where do you see some potential value out there, perhaps some, some areas of the industry that just have been overlooked that there's potential and, and buyers can get in perhaps at lower multiples? Sure. Um, that's a, wow, that's a good question. Let me think on that for a second. Um, and I guess I would say... In terms of firms that may have been more on the money management side, 
So they could have been managing money for individuals and institutions. A number of those firms who really aren't known as a product specialist, um, but really high quality money manager have begun to pivot into wealth. So they might be the the old um, name for this business might have been investment counsel. That might be how they describe themselves. Um, but there are a number of these firms that are starting to push a little bit more into wealth and adding some capabilities, adding planners. And this is an area where somebody might have said, well, that's a large cap core manager. I'm not interested. But they actually do a fantastic job on a, an after-tax basis driving for tax efficiency for their clientele, bringing in a blend of open architecture. But they, again, fell in that category where it looks more like a product manager than a service provider in the wealth space. Um, This is a really interesting opportunity um, to look at firms that are making the pivot. Um, There are a number of firms, I would say, in the consulting space that might have been more traditional pension fund consultants that pivoted their model into OCIO, outsourced chief investment officer model, and then also into consultancy for family offices. Um, That's a very, uh, I would say, up and coming and attractive space. Let me think where else you could pick my brain so everybody runs to it before I get there. (laughs) Uh, Impact. Impact is starting to take hold, um, but there are actually some really high quality firms that are under the radar screen um, that have these wonderful capabilities that can be brought to bear for some larger platforms that may have embedded distribution in their own high net worth clientele. Right. Well, you've got such, you know, with, with the 200 plus deals that you've done in your career and largely most of these and, you know, private deals that where folks like myself and the average viewer reader can't uh, really understand what was, what was paid for these businesses. You've got such a great, sample size to, to go from. And going back to what you're saying earlier, when you've got clients either on the sell side or buy side that are are looking to do a transaction, you can pull out so many examples of who's done it right, who who hasn't done it right. Um, and, you know, who's who sort of benefited from uh, the outcomes. And uh, I, I think that's great. And, you know, testament to everything you've accomplished over there. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, I want to I want to talk about maybe firms we're not the the, the you know average uh, listener doesn't think about. You know, Amazon was a bookseller that morphed into this you know the undisputed leader of commerce. Uh, Netflix used to send me DVDs in the mail, and they've totally revolutionized the way we see uh, video content today. Um, who do you, who would you say are uh, for potential disruptors in our industry? Maybe companies that aren't in retail wealth management today, but, but have the potential to get there. Wow. Um, that's a tough one. <laughs> Told you I'd challenge you. Oh my goodness. You know what? There are a lot of um, tech giants that have um, VC investment vehicles and they're making, and, and again, I, I pride myself on confidentiality, but some of these giants um, with their um, CVC corporate venture capital funds have actually made investments in firms where they're trying to understand the nuances of the business. And my guess is 
some of the big names that you know will make a foray into this space. Um, we don't know exactly how and through what medium, but, you know, and I'm sorry not to, to give you a name, but anytime people start an investing vehicle around, you know, wealth, wealth tech, fintech, and they study the space, often we see somebody enter the space. And so I'll give you an example. Um, we represented a firm called Advisor, A-D-V-I-Z-R, wonderful, um, cool kid on the block financial planning tool. And Advisor took uh, capital, we did two rounds. First one was with um, Franklin uh, and uh, SEI, and the second one was with um, Western and Southern. And interestingly, for Franklin, who had been looking at their own business model, um, and this is a very well-run organization that may be still dubbed an incumbent firm, one of the legacy names that you know in money management, but they brilliantly started to make some investments in firms to understand the shifting marketplace. They acquired from us a firm called Advisor Engine, um, which I think you know that CEO, Rich Cancrow, um, you know, for an ability to start to uh, pivot the model, um, leverage relationships that they have, and think about different forms of distribution. I I'm going to wager a bet that this is going to be a home run for them. But again, so much of their foray in um, was let let's study the market, let's make some investments. And with Advisor, that ultimately was acquired by Orion, um, but it was a, a, an early chance for them to enter as an enterprise user, figure out the model, understand where the leverage points could be, and get a toehold into um, some wealth tech solutions that could be beneficial to their broader communities. Right, right. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the private equity firms, but there's, you know, a lot of firms out there like Amazon, for example, they've got the capital, they've got the brand recognition, uh, the marketing muscle. Um, and they have one thing that my daughter always reminds me of. They've got data and data is king, as we know in this business. Uh, what they're missing is industry experience, a track record, relationships. And, and these are all things that they can acquire themselves right into and, you know, I, I think we're going to see somebody like that uh, over the next three to five years that gets in in a big way where, you know, you and I are just sitting there scratching our heads saying, really, them? Why them? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and so, and, that, and I think that's healthy for the business. I think it's healthy for the American investor. Um, we've got time for one last question. And, uh, and, I, and I'll, I'll just quickly ask you, when you've looked at, as you've done a lot of transactions, you've seen the transition periods that people go through after the transition or after the, the transactions completed. And, you know, many, many sellers out there are fearful of selling because of, of exactly that, the transition, what's involved, uh, what's it going to mean to my clients, what it's going to mean to my staff. So in your experience, Liz, is, it, you know, as, as firms go through transitions, is it more of a kind of let's let's rip the band-aid off and just move to the next level or is patience went out here and and is that better for the long game mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question uh, I you know it, it probably is some happy medium between the two but if it is a fully integrated deal it is hard to dribble that out um, 
invariably you end up with some resistance and people saying, oh, can I still continue to use this planning software for a little bit more? Or my name brand is really important. We need to keep that on the door. Let's instead of six months, let's do it for 12 or 18 or 24. It's one of those things where, um, I mean, the good news about today's market is there's so many different types of uh, opportunities for transacting um, from minority to majority to wholesale fully integrated transaction. But if it is a fully integrated transaction, it is hard to do it slower. It's actually harder on people. It's harder on the clientele. And it would mm -hmm. seem illogical almost, but I remember one of my early clients in the space, um, a, a, a wonderful old name that everybody will remember, uh, US Trust. And that CEO and uh, vice chairman, uh, Jeff Moore and Mary Beth Ray said consistently, at closing, the brand changes. At closing, we'll begin to morph over to this system. At closing. And it was a, a tough thing to have that conversation. But at the end of the day, they built a much more seamless national brand. And it enabled people to take advantage of the hub and spoke system. So it was much easier to build a national integrated brand in that model than to give people their own time horizon to uh, come to the realization that an integrated solution is a better solution. Yeah, and I can imagine that's tough. Uh, that's great advice, tough for some people to follow, um, especially if they've you know built their baby up over the last mm -hmm. 30 years and now to sell it. But uh, but uh, I completely understand what you mean. Well, Liz, thank you so much for your time this morning, for your valuable time this morning. Um, I wish you the best of luck this year. I think you will not you. suffer from lack of <laughs> opportunity. Uh, it's... <laughs> Uh, but you will be successful. And, and like I said earlier, making a lot of people happy. So thank you for your time and best of luck to you and enjoy the holidays. Thanks to you as well. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.